welcome. Last week we had a little impromptu meeting because uh, snow came and the, plot, the parking lot was knee deep or whatever. And so people were here, so we printed some stuff and uh, we can get people up to speed. But I just sat here and talked about the kingdom of God and stuff like that from Luke Acts, but we didn't cover any of what we were going to hear. So you should all be able to look at what we're doing. Acts 19, 6 through 10. And let me give you a little preview where this is going to go. I have purchased some slides, and I'll show you that there's more than... I don't, I don't print these. I don't know if I can or not, but we will see here what things are like in a synagogue what it means to reason in, this, in Ephesus this, and various things that show the places. So we'll get to that if we get past slide one. <laughs> so I know how we do things sometimes because we want to thoroughly study the scripture. And we are in Acts 19.6. Let's begin with prayer. Thank you, dear Lord, for your goodness and kindness, for the opportunity to look into the scriptures and encourage one another and learn. Thank you for the for people that are hungry to learn the word of God. And may we uh, grow in, in our faith and our trust in you. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. So I have a whole bunch of material here that I've printed and discussed, and some of it's sitting there by Eric and some of it further down there. We'll see what comes up. But the last thing we were on was Acts 19, 6 through 7. And it was a while back, last month sometime, I think. Here's what the topic was. There were some disciples of John the Baptist who are portrayed by Luke, who is the Holy Spirit-inspired author, as being in a different category than Apollos. Apollos was preaching and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus Christ. These uh, persons in Ephesus were people that understood John's baptism, but then were instructed that they needed to be baptized and receive the Spirit in the sense that ha- what happened elsewhere in Acts. So we can go through all of that, and let's just start where we were. I'll read this, Acts 19, 6 and 7. And when Paul laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they began to speak in tongues and to prophesy. Now the total number of men was about 12. There may be some reasons why Luke says that as well. And... My claim is this, from reading Luke Acts as a two-volume work. Joel 2.28, that's on the slide here. Joel 2.28 and it's Acts 2, 16 through 18 fulfillment are key passages in Luke Acts. And why are we saying that? Many times we've discussed the fact that Luke, in his two-volume work, shows how the Holy Spirit comes upon people, including at the very beginning of Luke. And when they do, 
they, what they speak are words from God about fulfillment of what's already happened and what will happen. All right? And so one of those that we've covered, did, did we do this last when people weren't here? There was a long uh, speech by Zacharias who it was mute. Is that right? And because God was going to do something and he didn't believe it and he was mute, his tongue was loosed, the Holy Spirit comes upon him and he speaks. And that is a very important passage because in this brilliant writing, Luke Acts, Luke is telling us what's going to happen. All right? The Holy Spirit comes upon people and they speak about the mighty deeds of God. So uh, I think I had that printed out somewhere, but we'll probably read the whole thing. I think I did last week when we didn't record. Whoever went through all the snow, we couldn't get it canceled in time, so we had an impromptu discussion. That's not saying the next time it snows run down here, maybe we'll have church. (laughs) But that's just kind of what happened. Um, This is just for your own study. If you go back into the early part of Luke, you see what happens when the Holy Spirit comes upon someone. Now, in particular, Joel 2.28 is being fulfilled throughout Luke Acts, although it's cited in Acts at Pentecost. Have you heard that discussed before? Or is it a new idea? It's something that I'm seeing good evidence for, but not everybody would uh, agree with me. Any discussion on that point? What's that? Repeat the point. The point is that Joel 2.28, someone look that up and read it, Joel 2.28, and my claim is that that is thematic in Luke-Acts. What happens in Luke is a preview of what God's going to do through Messiah. John the Baptist is a person who points to Messiah, to Jesus Christ, and that he fulfills the role, one of the roles of Elijah, which was from Malachi. And we learn this as we go through the, uh, the baptism of Jesus, the voice from heaven, and all of these previews. So what does it say in Joel 2.28? Someone want to read that? Yes, please. Um, and afterward, And afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. Yes. And what's amazing about Luke is that the preview of that starts happening already in Luke. It doesn't come out of nowhere in Acts 2. It's already previewed. Now, who prophesies early in Luke? We've talked about this before. The angel comes and announces to whom? 
Shepherds? Weren't shepherds considered unclean? Um, what about uh, that? We went through it uh, in our impromptu meeting. Zacharias, I think I read that whole prophecy. It's really long. It's been, yeah. If you read through the prophecy, when his tongue is loosed, you know, he, he gives previews. He speaks by the Spirit about what God's going to do. And then the sons and daughters is a preview that God's doing that by who the Holy Spirit comes upon and they speak. And what they speak about is messianic salvation. Is that correct? So God has come onto the scene of history and announced his ways, but the people who you would expect to see and hear and know this are the ones who reject it many times. And unexpected people believe and God uses them. Uh, Norm. Yeah, um, we're talking about um, the Holy Spirit coming upon them and they speak, but in on the day of Pentecost, spirit is given, and is there a difference between that giving of the spirit and a spirit just coming upon an individual or people for a one-time thing, and they speak and they do what God wants them to do, but are they necessarily, they're not necessarily converted people or anything, they're just being used by God for a purpose? Well, uh, the implication is that those who God uses in the Old Testament all the way back to the beginning all the way through now there's, there was how much between Malachi and Matthew like 400 years and the unique thing about that period is they knew they didn't have a prophet okay if you read the intertestamental material somewhere in Malachi they were trying to decide what to do, and they said, we'll wait until God raises up a prophet. Today, people create prophets whether, whether they exist or not. Uh, what happens in Luke is that God is acting in history to bring to pass the promises of messianic salvation. However, the irony, and we can't miss this, or we're not reading Luke Acts very well, is that the people who we would expect would be the key people, the leadership of Israel, the Sanhedrin, the pious ones, the Pharisees, the people there, they would be the first ones to receive it. But the irony is that in Luke Acts, and this is not saying it's not true elsewhere, but I'm sticking with what we're reading and studying, Jerusalem rejects the prophets that are sent. So in Acts, the travel narrative goes from uh, Luke 9.51 all the way up to Jesus' lament over Jerusalem. And Jerusalem rejects the prophets that are sent. But in the meantime, people, the Holy Spirit comes upon people and they speak. Think about this. We talked about this in this impromptu thing that happened last week. The way biblical writers tell us what God does, especially in Luke, 
is the speeches that are given by key people reveal God's purposes. And that's true for Zacharias. That's true for Mary. It's true for Hannah. It's true for, um, well, the best speech ever is God himself speaking from heaven. Right? Didn't you preach on that? Okay. So if God speaks from heaven and says, this is my beloved son in whom I well pleased, listen to him, you should believe that. Because God cannot lie. All right? And so if you don't listen to Jesus, you're missing it. Jesus is God the Son. And the Trinity is a very important doctrine. So through Luke-Acts, men and women prophesy. It doesn't mean that you have women pastors and elders, but it means that God is using everybody who knows him and trusts him to be part of the family of God. There are groups that won't allow women to be deacons, and that's foolish because be a deacon is to serve. The point isn't what status we have now in Christendom or the institutional church. The issue is, do we know God? Are we trusting Christ? Is God at work changing us from the inside out? And are we willing to listen to the word of God? And so unexpected people spoke in Luke and God used those people as previews of salvation. Does that make sense? Yeah, so um, God could be using those people for this purpose, but we, we wouldn't want to jump to, to the conclusion that therefore the Spirit is dwelling in them and dwelling in them. They are now believers because God did something through them one time. Um, you could say that in Acts about um, we have reasons to use discernment about that because we have the parables. You have the Simon the Sorcerer who earlier in Acts, what, what chapter was that? Acts 8? Yeah. It said he believed, said he was baptized, and then the apostles came down from Jerusalem, prayed for them, and they had they received the Spirit, and Simon saw something he wanted to buy. Correct? So, therefore, at that time, when he wanted to buy the ability to impart the Spirit, what did Peter say to him? Well, we'll do the euphemized version. You and your money can go perish together. You have no part or lot in that matter. And the word lot there, Mayros, I think, if I'm remembering right, would be part of the inheritance. Does that make sense? So let me get, that's a good question because I want to get something clear. We're not talking about what God can do. God is all powerful. We're talking about how we know that it's God or not God. So the issue isn't, limiting God. The issue is us knowing that it's God so that we're not deceived. Okay? So in the early, I should say about 1989, 90, 91, uh, I hosted a pastor's meeting, mostly charismatic Pentecostal pastors, and we discussed these things. 
And one of the things that people say was, well, if you talk about discernment, you're limiting God or quenching the spirit. But the issue isn't that God's limited by us questioning whether something's genuine or not. The issue is God gives us means of being Bereans to see if these things are so. And I think I put a slide up one time showing why that's so important. Let me, but here's, here's the point. Pharaoh was able to do signs in his, up to a certain point, but it didn't save anybody. Um, we were talking about baptism earlier before the class started. Remember 1 Corinthians 10? Israel came through the Red Sea. Pharaoh's army got in there, but did they come out on the other side? No. <laughs> they drowned in the Red Sea. But the liberals said, well, it's really a reed sea. Anybody could just walk through it. So then the conservatives said, well, well, that's a miracle too. They drowned in three feet of water. <laughs> Chariots and horses. So the Bible means what it says. And the point is this. Those who believe the truth about Jesus Christ are those who are saved. So we're, if we say, well, does that mean Zacharias was saved? Well, yes. Does it mean uh, Abraham was saved? If you go through Romans 11, excuse me, Hebrews 11, we see Abraham believed God. Other people believed God. Now, Joel prophesied about a future time when this would be more universal for all who believe. Is that correct? Not universalism. Because most of the people at Pentecost didn't believe either. Most of the people at Athens didn't believe when Paul preached there. So how do we know that this is what God is doing? And how they knew was that scripture was fulfilled. Acts 2, or excuse me, Joel 2.38. Previews and reviews. So Zacharias, Mary, who are the other ones? Um, I've been rereading Luke Acts, but uh, it's, it's enough that I can't just say every one of them. But the people, when the Holy Spirit comes upon them and they speak forth truth about what God is doing, God is saying, believe that. That is how we learn. The speech in the mouth of a person who speaks and the author determines the meaning, Luke is telling us that's right. That's what God's doing. Now, occasionally, someone who isn't from God will say the truth, howbeit uh, unwillingly in a certain sense. And the best test of that example is Balaam. Okay? So Balaam was hired, he was a practicer of divination, to curse Israel. How many of you know it's a bad idea to curse Israel? Very, very bad. So what happened to Balaam? He, he was supposed to curse Israel, but even though he didn't want to serve God, he blessed Israel. Because God worked through him despite his false status. Now, how do we know 
Balaam is false because he's mentioned three times in the New Testament and every time it's about apostates that go the way of Balaam. So who speaks for God that's approved? Zacharias did. Uh, Mary did in the Magnificat, as they call it in church history. Hannah did. And others as we go through. The same happens in Luke. Now, what's authoritative is scripture and what God has promised, not just what we want. Yes, Laverne. Well, I think it's interesting because the high priest said it's better for one man to die for the whole nation, and he didn't realize he was speaking prophecy. That's a good point. That's then, a very good reading. And then also, didn't God speak through a donkey when he needed on to... Yeah, that was Balaam, but that doesn't mean go buy a donkey so you can hear from God. Well, I'm, I'm just trying to answer his question. No, I know. I, I'm agreeing with you. About it's not always people who are believers... Right. And who it's it's and besides in the Old Testament, we have examples like, for instance, Samson. Now, of course, he was a man of God, but um, the use of the Spirit—that's the third relationship of the Spirit, the EPI, the coming upon—and it's for service. So those people in the Old Testament, because Jesus hadn't died, they didn't have the Spirit, but the Spirit came upon them for service and empowered them, and that's okay. what happened with Samson. Uh, in some cases, it's approved, and sometimes it isn't. Samson, Judges is one of the more difficult books. And the outline for Judges is from bad to worse. Now, I'm not commenting. If you ever read Judges, there's not a lot of good things to happen. But you got a good point. Uh, the issue isn't what God can do. It's how do we know what's approved by God and we should emulate so the Lord rebukes those who emulate Balaam. In, I think, is it in Revelation? Go ahead, Eric. Do you have something to say about that, please? Well, you know, I was going to just mention the significance of what you said, Bob, about not just what God can do, but how do we know what he has done and right. what he is going to do. And that's one of the reasons I think it's significant that Paul was the one who laid hands on them. At the hands of the apostles, often you see the Spirit bestowed in the book of Acts. And the reason I think that, that God does that is in Acts 1.8, that's the programmatic verse of the book of Acts where he says to his apostles, not to everyone, he says to his apostles, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Well, it's interesting. You see the bestowal of the Holy Spirit follows that. It comes in Acts 8. So in Acts 2, it's in Jerusalem, Judea. And Acts 8, at the bestowal of the the bestowal of the Spirit comes to the Samaritans. And then now we're seeing it coming to the Gentile world, the ends of the earth. Right. Well, what's interesting is more corroboration that this is true is one of the miracles that Jesus did, he fulfilled Isaiah 35. In Isaiah 35, 5 through 6, he healed the deaf, he healed the blind, and he made the lame walk. Good reading. Well, the apostles do the very same thing. And it follows Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and the Gentile world. Now, in fact, I'll lay that out next week in the sermon. So at the works of the, the apostles, they're showing themselves to be the ones who are the authoritative spokesmen for Christ. And one of the reasons it's important is because you don't have one church in Jerusalem and another in Ephesus. At the hands of the apostles, they're showing the unity right. of all of the church now. And so that's why I don't think we should see it as being normative today 
that the Holy Spirit comes with the laying on of hands. This was unique, just as the apostles were unique for the first century. What does laying on of hands signify in such cases? Solidarity. Solidarity. That's the primary issue. Right. Yeah, solidarity. Um, And um, the point is very, very important. And when we allow the experience in a certain case to define everything, it, it gets to be a big problem. Now, I found this book by Ankerberg and Weldon called various, is it, have anybody else ever seen this? I got to get, if somebody wants some books, I got a lot of books to get rid of so I can find the ones I need. <laughs> uh, I, I'm going to loan this to someone and ask about it, but oneness Pentecostalism is about a third of the entire Pentecostal movement. And when I was at North Central Bible College, which is a Pentecostal um, institution, because they were the ones that led us to the Lord, and they were talking about this. And so here's a, uh, I found this interesting. It talks about different versions of monarchianism, modalistic and dynamic and so on. But I heard when I would studied the history that I studied at North Central that in 1913 or 16, one of those, I think it was 16, they had a big meeting, and this was part of the holiness movement that happened in America in the late 19th century, early 20th century. And some people had spoken in tongues, and there was a a person that said, well, look here, they baptized in the name of Jesus, so therefore any baptism in water that's not in the name of Jesus is invalid. And they were wondering about it. Now, this is documented here. And so that's two sources I have, including the one that I had in Bible college. And this one preacher went into his tent and said, I'll find out. So he went into his tent, and he prayed all night long. And when he came out, he said, God told me. It's Jesus only. And then from then on, they, they would question if anybody was baptized and this spread to a third of the ordained ministers in the assemblies of God, and they left and started their own denomination, uh, United Pentecostal Church. So then what happened was if anyone had been baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, they're told that they're damned. It's, they, that's, and I saw that, by the way. This um, Weldon and Ankerberg, and they, they go all the way through Branham. Branham was a version of that, but there are other, other ones. I hope I got the names right, but we used to, when we wanted to do, learn apologetics, we showed tapes down when I was at 24th and Nicola of Ankerberg. Walter Martin was debating with some of these United Pentecostal people, all right? And they were oneness, and he had to be baptized in the name of Jesus. And so, well, I believe it was Martin, or I may have the wrong person, so somebody can research that, but it was a solid Christian person saying, okay, Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. He, he confessed 
the person of Christ, the virgin birth, the sinless life, the substitutionary atonement, the resurrection, and confessed everything that one would confess to be a Christian. And he asked these oneness Pentecostal leaders, am I your brother in Christ? They wouldn't answer. Because they believed he was damned because he'd been baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I remember seeing that on video. And then I found this down at the bottom of behind some boxes of books that I'd had since... And it's all documented by Ankerberg, who's videotaped that. So here's what you need to know. We're not trying to say God has to do things our way. He doesn't. What we want to do is know what God said and believe that and use discernment. And sadly... You know the word dokimazo is the same root of the word dekomai in a different context is to welcome. If you don't welcome the love of the truth, they would not welcome the love of the truth, so they're deceived. I have a slide about that. Dokimazo means put something to the test to see if it's genuine. And so you put it to the test. You, you look to see what's genuine based on what the scripture says. And then, having done that, what you can do is welcome the genuine and reject the dross. Okay? So God does what he says he will do. Those who use discernment according to biblical standards, not just rejecting things on the grounds that God doesn't do the supernatural, which is certainly false, are not grieving the spirit. They're learning what is genuine and what's not. Peter spoke for God when he said to Simon, though he'd been baptized, though he was part of everything else up to that point, he said, give me that power, I'll pay you for it. And Peter said, you and your money can go perish. You have no part or lot in this matter. And what did Simon say? Pray for me that these things don't happen to me. He didn't repent. He just didn't want the consequence. So there's the real, the genuine that's from God. And then there's the false, which according to Thessalonians, isn't lacking supernatural. It's very supernatural. I I could find that slide. I'd have to probably unlaunch this one. But Antichrist and Christ... Uh, Oh, I wanted to correct something I said, too. Antichrist and Christ both have porousia, both have appearances, both have signs, both have power. But what is the difference? The lie versus the truth. The lie is the message of Antichrist. The truth is the message of Jesus Christ. Now, in John 8, the truth confronts the lie. And the leaders of Israel said, Um, you're of your father the devil eventually no Jesus said that to them but they were of the lie the truth always points to the personal work of Christ so the oneness Pentecostals say you must speak in tongues or you're damned you must be baptized in the name of Jesus only or you're damned the truth says God 
gives gifts. The test is our confession of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And Eric and I are claiming that anyone who denies the Trinity is denying Christ. So if you have a false Christ, if the Father says, speaks from heaven at the baptism of Jesus, which Eric lately talked about, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And the son says to those who weren't believing him, unless you believe that I am, this is in John, you'll die in your sins. If you're baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit by the authority of Jesus Christ who commanded that in, in Matthew uh, 28, that's a Trinitarian baptism. And if you deny that, literally, if you deny that and you try to go to a oneness Pentecostal church, they'll tell you you're damned. We want you to speak in tongues, be baptized in the name of Jesus only, or you're damned. And, and there's video of that, the anchor book, Bergshaw. God also gave Jesus the authority to judge. So. Yes. And so the Trinity is non-negotiable. And the sad thing, and it's mentioned by Weldon in this uh, encyclopedia of various cults and religions that what happened is that major broadcasting companies, Christian broadcasting companies would bring oneness Pentecostals on and give them approval. Most famous one being T.D. Jakes. Does God work through people who are heretics who deny the Trinity? Yeah, to, to bring judgment on people who won't listen, but it's not a good The work of God is to believe on him. This is the work, that you believe in him whom the Father sent. So that's, that's the context. That's a big context, but we've got to see this. So Apollos had the, spoke accurately about Jesus Christ. Here's some people who hadn't yet heard of the Holy Spirit. And under, from Pentecost on, now you could, you know how there's a little period of time between? But if you come to Christ, you're saved. The thief on the cross heard from Jesus, this is in Luke, today you'll be with me in paradise. Okay? And here we have demonstration that people should have listened to John the Baptist who spoke of the one who comes later, and those who did receive the Spirit as they have the more full understanding. Let me cite uh, one of my sources, Peterson, who we've used a number of times going through Acts. He says, like the narrative of Paul's ministry in Philippi, Acts 16, 11 through 40, and Corinth, um, Acts 18, 1 through 17, Acts 19 presents several scenes portraying ways in which the gospel impacted Ephesus and the surrounding region. The number and length of these scenes indicate the diversity and significance of Paul's encounter with various groups in Ephesus. Overall, the impression is given, says Peterson, 
of an amazing impact on this city, which was profoundly influenced by magic and the cult of the goddess Artemis. And I'll, I'll be showing that as we go forward here uh, in Acts. A previous reference, Peterson notes, to Paul's synagogue ministry in Ephesus, 18, 19 through 21, is picked up and developed in 19, 8 through 10. And so it, then he talks about Paul's ministry to the disciples of Apollos. And Apollos is put in a different category by Luke. That's clear. Um, he needed only some further instruction to be truly effective witness. However, the disciples, this is Peterson, whom Paul met at Ephesus, had to receive had received John's baptism, but did not understand the purpose of John's mission. They needed to grasp where Jesus fitted into the picture to be baptized in his name and to receive the promised Holy Spirit. So the point is this. I wrote an article once where I went through every incident in Acts that would be like this and laid out the claim that when I was at North Central, they said that if you hadn't spoken in tongues, you hadn't yet received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And I had no reason to doubt that, although at that point, I wasn't sure about it. And I had some wonderful teachers, and I would not want to disrespect them. Solid, and they taught me, learned Greek, stayed in Scripture, studied the Bible. But when I went through every possible incident, there's no one pattern. And CIC issue 33 uh, was written, CICministry.org issue 33. I went through the entire book of Acts and found that there's no one pattern. This isn't about ordo salutis. It's about the fulfillment of God's promises. And in each case, and sometimes they spoke in tongues. Sometimes that's not mentioned. Sometimes it happened differently, as in Acts 8. Here, it's slightly different. And, uh, and you go forward. But the whole point is the fulfillment of prophecy. So we're not able to go back and say, well, I'm alive now at the time between Jesus' uh, death and then his ascension. And what's my status? It's a pretty short period of time. The important point was what Jesus said to his disciples. Look at Luke, for example. The road to Emmaus. What did Jesus tell them on the road to Emmaus? Eric, uh, can you quick turn quick to Acts, or Luke 24, I think it is? Or maybe you have it memorized. You know, I've got a... I don't have my cheaters. I'll defer to uh, Brian here. But I... Uh... I brought the wrong Bible, too. I I've been left cheating my... since I was in my 20s. Yeah. <laughs> I left my uh, large print at home. So. What do we want, Luke 24? Well, just look at the road to Emmaus. And a summary was, he, what did he explain to them on the road? All things concerning From the scriptures, right? All right. He, he, he began in the scriptures and explained the prophecy about himself. Is that not correct? The Old Testament. Yeah, from the Old Testament. 
Now, this is the simplest way. This will help. I remember uh, when I was learning to read narrative from some good, solid teachers whose commentaries are, I, I have now, they said, the author determines the meaning, not the reader. Luke is inspired by the Holy Spirit. So when Luke tells about the road to Emmaus, what is the point? That, that's the, I got that assignment from a teacher one time on the Fisher of Men one. The, if we can understand the author's meaning, we'll know what the Holy Spirit said. Well, he's explaining from the scriptures the things concerning himself. And we know what those are based on the previous prophecies. And people speak for God. The Holy Spirit comes upon them and they speak. And the author tells us that's accurate. Now, the author also tells us, that's a good point, Laverne, about Balaam. We know he, he spoke for God, but he didn't want to. All right? But we don't have to be in the dark about it because we know that God tells us that Israel is his people and we're not to curse Israel, right? Go ahead, Eric. I was going to mention, um, I was thinking about Hebrews 1.1. 1, 1. In the past, God has spoken to our fathers in many portions and in many ways. And that would incorporate the donkey. It incorporates Balaam. But like you said, Bob, when we look at the authorial intent, we know Balaam and the donkey aren't authoritative prophets of God. So, for example, we don't look to donkeys to know what God is doing or what he has done. But we know that God has spoken in miraculous ways in these ways. But what he's done through the apostles and through his prophets is he personally and objectively intervened in their lives in such a way that we can objectively say, yes, these are men who gave us the very words of God. And that's what Bob and I have been really adamant about is to show that when Paul is laying hands or when Paul, his shadow comes upon someone and someone is healed, if I go to a hospital today, God may or may not heal the person I pray for, but these guys were batting a thousand. There's a unique There's a unique nature to that. And again, it's to show that these were his authoritative spokesmen. So when we read what they write, we know it's the very inerrant word of God. Yes, and that's our next pericope when we get to the next section after, well, I don't know, sometime in 2024. No, we'll, we'll get there before that. <laughs> you can read ahead all you want. But it, the issue is what's normative? God can use a lot of things, but what's normative? God used Pharaoh, but Pharaoh was drowned. God used people who had bad motives, Joseph's brothers, Genesis 50 and verse 20. But what's normative? Messianic salvation through the one who was prophesied all the way back into Genesis, the seed of the woman and so forth. The Messianic prophecies all through there. So Jesus on the road to Emmaus is telling them from the scriptures things about himself. And what did they say? Our hearts burned. Wow. A lot of us think, well, why couldn't I have been there? Well, that would have been a great place to be. But the fact is they were willing to listen. And we know the content of that by the rest of the New Testament in a sense. Every time Messianic prophecy is explained through Acts, we're finding out what the content was. And earlier, when Jesus taught, Scripture is cited 
All right. So we're not excluded. We're included. Now, the Bereans were searching the scriptures to see if these things are true. Not every one of them believed. But there were, they were, the ones that did are part of the church. Now, the big question is this. How do we know a true work of the Spirit of God? We're not saying God can't do whatever he chooses to do. Even use Pharaoh. Even use Balaam. But how do we know what's valid? And the test is the confession of the person and work of Jesus Christ. And there's a we did some seminars on this in, under the auspices of a different group. It was in this building, but it was a different group. I found a slide that we did about New Age spirituality. And there are people who were bringing it in. Oprah Winfrey had Eckhart Tolle. <laughs> Eckhart Tolle, Marianne Williamson. There was another old Byrne, a lady named Byrne. So it's New Age but it's spirituality. So being spiritual doesn't make something biblical. Okay? Spirituality is popular right now. And calling something Christian doesn't make it biblical. So the way we know is by loving the truth as is revealed in Scripture. The author tells us what we should believe. And that's what Luke is doing. Luke is showing here that Paul laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they began to speak in tongues and prophesy. And the number was about 12. The 12 is included, in my opinion, to show that God, that this, these are valid disciples. Remember earlier in Acts 1, they wanted a replacement for Judas? so that there'd be a 12. The 12 are mentioned. And so rather than us deciding, well, what's the name of all 12 that they had right then, it's telling us this is what God is doing, and these are the ones who speak for God. Schnabel says this, the manifestation corresponds to the expectation that the reception of the Spirit would be a matter of immediate perception. The Ephesians are expected to know whether or not they did, in fact, receive the Spirit when they believed. Acts 19, 2. Whether from initial charismata or following experience. Continue with Schnabel. The, their commitment to the Lord Jesus expressed in the invocation of the name of Jesus as they were immersed in water and their reception of the Spirit constituted their conversion. They are now Christian believers. This isn't about what God can do. It's about what he did and how we know this is how people are to be received in the fellowship they believe in the person of Christ and the apostolic doctrine. And discernment is utterly necessary. The cults grow because they claim to be the true people who speak for God. So in that regard, God has told us what he did and what we should believe. And let me say this also. Those who believe in Christ, the Trinitarian God of the Bible, the creator, 
who come to him on his terms by his grace are to be received, not based on uh, denominational considerations, not based on how bad their lives have been in the past, not based on... Look at Samaritans, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. I did a, a search on that. Samaritans in Luke Acts. In Luke, 10 lepers are cleansed. They, they said, go show yourself to the priest, which would be evidence that God had done that, and they were considered cleansed. One came back and gave thanks. Who was it? Samaritan. All that's going to do is offend people if they don't think that God can do that. But this is setting up. Luke is a brilliant writer inspired by the Holy Spirit. So then later, Samaria gets special attention. The Holy Spirit comes and saves people. So that's what we are to learn. Now, the next one, verse 8, and he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly, notice that word, for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Now, this is what I have, these printouts that we were looking at last when people got snowed out, but we were here, so we did something. We only had one person under 60, and we decided that even at that, we couldn't possibly shovel the whole parking lot. (laughs) Brian and I tried, but we only got to the front door. And I think if we were all under 60, we still couldn't have done it. Now, here's the point. Look at this. Reasoning is not a bad thing. Okay? If you go somewhere and they said, we already did all the thinking. We already figured it all out. You come, you do what we say, and God will be happy with you. That is not biblical. Because in the scriptures, those who examine evidence and look for what's genuine and truly from God are commended. And when people say, don't question, we know we're right because we are we, which is grammatically cracked. That doesn't work. Here's something that I've really learned through a lot of failures and then finally God gets this clear in my mind. The arena of public debate is where the gospel is to go. Okay? The arena of public debate doesn't happen when you're part of Watchtower and you're forbidden to read anything but their literature. Does that that make sense? The arena of public debate doesn't happen and uh, We've been doing some podcasts for critical issues on Luther rebuking Rome and teaching the priests of every believer. Basically, it comes down to, we speak for God, you submit to us. And if you want your prayers answered, you do it, you got to go through us. You can't go directly to God, that's not right. And so, no. The arena of public debate isn't, I only believe what is taught in the creeds and councils of the Roman Catholic Church. That's not the arena of public debate. That's parochialism. But evangelicals tend to do the same thing. We get into a real narrow thing, and anything outside of that, we don't even give a hearing. 
here's what is necessary. If you can take the ideas that you find in Scripture and debate someone as well or better educated and deal with these things, that's when we have a chance to search the Scriptures to see if they're true. Paul went to Mars Hill. He debated philosophers. I'll be talking about that in 1 Corinthians. That was the arena of public debate. That's what they did. And he didn't change his message. He went there and preached on the resurrection. So the synagogue is where they had the scriptures. The synagogue was not the temple that comes up in Acts 21 where there's a big problem. But he entered a synagogue speaking out boldly. Boldly here would be uh, preaching clearly and forthrightly the truth not trying to win approval, not trying to be popular, not hoping to prove that you'll have a better life if you just put Christian in front of whatever you're already doing. But he was proclaiming the means of salvation, the narrow path. Yes, Tom. Bob, I appreciate the challenge of us living in the area, arena of public debate. But the challenge for me is identifying where that is. Because today, with political correctness and the cancel culture, public debate is not allowed. So we as Christians, where is it we're to take a stand, and what is the public debate for us? Well, what stand are we to take as Christians? Jesus is the Christ. I believe that the arena of public debate includes anywhere we're allowed where people have a chance to listen to us. We may not be asked back, but it includes Christendom. It includes any place we may end up where they're willing to listen. If someone wants to interview us, we can talk in a appropriate manner about what we believe and why we believe it. But, and frankly, I'm hearing more about Christianity now that all this stuff's going on in Ukraine. I've seen people talking about the Lord, about Jesus Christ, about adopting children. And uh, I noticed uh, some of the persons who are interviewed will actually say, Jesus Christ died for sins. He's God's son. You need him. God raised him from the dead. He shed his blood. If I hear that, that gets my attention. Yes, O'Brien. I heard an interesting interview yesterday with that Dan Coates from Canada who they threw in prison. And uh, he was praying for, unbelievably, from the first few minutes that he entered the Canadian prison system, he started witnessing to people. So even though he was there because of him defying the government on opening his church, he ends up in prison witnessing to people, helping prisoners, praying for people, and, and ministering to people in prison. What happens at the very end of the book of Acts? Well, same thing with Paul in it's, prison. He's, it's, just a, it's just a reflection of what uh, the disciples went through when they were yes, in prison. Yes, and I wrote an article called Brought Before Kings. The reason we're brought before kings is for a testimony, Jesus said, about me. 
And if you read the end of Acts, the very last verses, we, get, we see where this is going. Remember the theme. Uh, you'll be my witnesses. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. You'll be my witnesses. Judea, uh, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then all the way to the uttermost part of the earth. Where does he end up? In Rome. Now, he could have avoided that. Remember, he kept appealing because he had Roman citizenship. And he ended up in Rome. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, in answer to what Tom was saying, I've struggled with this myself over the years. And we have, our, we have a little evangelism group, you know, that we go out. And what I learned from reading, I didn't make this up. I just read stuff. But... One way you can, particularly nowadays, you can ask about four questions to people. Because they'll talk to you about stuff, what's going on, and lots of times there's problems. And you can say, do you have any spiritual beliefs? And people love to talk about what they believe, so they'll, they'll talk. And then you can say to them, to you, who is Jesus Christ? And they'll give you all kinds of, of comments, you know. But you just keep quiet. You just listen. And then you ask them, do you think that there's a heaven or a hell? And you listen. You listen. Because people like to talk. And, and this is very polite. And, and it's not, uh, you know, so, so you ask those three questions. And then you say, if you were to die, where do you think you would go? And if they say heaven, you ask them why. And the final question is, you say to them, if what you're believing is not true, would you want to know? Most people will say yes. Then you can get out your Bible. <laughs> <laughs> and that's when you need to be thinking ahead. But there is way. I think nowadays with all of the things, there's a lot of openings, yeah, just on an individual basis, you know. Uh, the one last thing I would say is William Wilberforce wrote a book. William Wilberforce wrote a book long ago, and he was the one that really helped end the slave trade in Great Britain. He wrote a book, and I can't even tell you the title. It's a really long title. And I've got the book, and it's in this old English type of a, a vernacular. It's, I can't hardly read it. I've tried to read it about three times. But he changed English culture with that book, and he brought people into kind of an awakening of biblical faith. But two of the points he made, and, and I think it's good to try to do this when you talk to people, is to say, have you noticed that there's a lot of evil in the world? And most people will agree. And so once they realize that there's evil in the world, you can talk to them about their sin, their, their nature, how we're all sinners. And so there's ways to do this. I think that we can all be kind of intentional about it. I think there's lots of opportunities out there. So What's un The unique thing is what God did in Christ. Let me, I was thinking about laying this out. I forgot to plug my computer in. That's why I died. No, let me lay out the essentials of a biblical worldview. I've been reading reading stuff that I read early in my Christian life by Francis Schaeffer. The first essential is God, the triune God revealed in the Bible, God created the entire universe out of nothing. Okay, God didn't evolve from anything. Uh, so the Eastern religions, the naturalistic religions, God created the universe out of nothing. So that's essential. As far as the person of Christ in the gospel, that's laid out in Scripture, and we've been talking about uh, 
Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, John 1, 1 through 18, the deity of Christ, the personal work of Christ, redemption history all the way from Genesis on. God created the universe. God created the earth. There was a fall, and there was a real fall. And after the fall, God already has a plan of salvation. If you believe that human beings are no different than animals, you have, do not have a biblical worldview. If you believe that there's been no fall and man is evolving, humans are evolving, you don't have a biblical, biblical worldview. If you believe that fallen humans, as they are, are perfectible, and that we're going to evolve into deity. That's what emergent taught. They call it Trinitarian panentheism. God is in everything, and we're evolving into Godhood. That's not a biblical worldview. Creation, fall. Humans are creating God's image, and they're still... This doesn't mean everybody's just as bad as they can be, but we need salvation and redemption. If there's no future judgment in your theology... You don't have a biblical worldview. Okay, so creation, the fall, plan of salvation, salvation history in scripture, we're heading not toward paradise, but toward judgment. And the only way to escape judgment is through the plan that God has in Christ. Turn to the Lord Jesus and be saved. We're not saved from lack of money. We're not saved from a lack of uh, emotional uh, feelings of goodness or uh, well-being were saved from the wrath of God. And I will further add, and I'm going to write about this soon, it, I believe that post-millennialism is the besetting sin of Christendom. The belief that as things are now, with Christ reigning in heaven only, that we can bring the kingdom to earth and present it to him, which, by the way, is believed by more Christians in America as far as their background than what I'm teaching. Postmillennialism is the besetting sin of Christendom. It was held from Augustine. I found a, a charts that I have of Christian theology. Augustine, all the way up to the present day Reconstructionism and so on. We're going to bring the kingdom through however. All right? That's not biblical. But a biblical worldview has Christian, uh, Christians trust the personal work of Christ. I would say Unitarianism, whether it's oneness Pentecostalism or Unitarian Universalism or whatever, is unbiblical. And they may have facts correct, but if you ever go to a oneness church and say, uh, I believe in the Trinity and the deity of Christ and the Father, Son, Holy Spirit is revealed in Scripture, you're anathema, you cannot be saved, you're lost. And uh, I brought some documentation about that. So let's work on that. Now, I'm so sorry that I didn't plug in my computer. He goes from the synagogue and they reason, and then they go into a bigger spot where other people, Gentiles, Jews, they debated, is this true? Paul spent a lot of time in Ephesus, more than he did in Corinth, and that becomes the center for defining the church in the New Testament. And you find Ephesus 
all the way up into Revelation, remember, right? Let's pray. Thank you for your patience. Dear Lord, thank you for your goodness and kindness. We want to learn from your scripture. We want to read together. And Lord, all of us know people who don't know you. May they be convicted. May the unrest that we see out here in the world cause people to see that they need you. They need forgiveness. And they got to hope in you alone. And help us be clear about our message of salvation. And I pray for Eric as he will preach the word of God to us. May we hear what you've said and search the scriptures as we learn it from Pastor Eric. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.